What was the last really fun thing you did? Oh, I went to Six Flags and we went really, really early. And you know, the really, really big Six Flags one, I think it's called the Titan. Yeah. We mm-hmm. got there so early that we, we, there was no line. So we just kept like going on a loop on it over and over. Oh and God. at a certain part, you kind of black out during the corkscrew. <laughs> um, so <laughs> that was really, really awesome. <laughs> Welcome to Read It and Roast. I'm Claire. And I'm Alex. And we're your hosts. The concept is simple. Someone recommends us a book, we read it, then invite them onto our show to tell them what we really thought of it. And at the end, we decide, is this book a read or a roast? Stay tuned, as we'll be releasing one episode a month until the end of the year. If you like our show, be sure to give us a follow on Instagram at Read It and Roast and on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Without further ado, Read It and Roast. Welcome to Read It and Roast. I'm officially welcomed. Thank you. Yes. So hello. Officially welcomed. What's your real name? (laughs) My name is Sarah. And um, thank you for having me. I love podcasts and it's really cool to finally be on one. And where's that sexy accent from? I'm from Portland, Oregon. I'm a dirty hippie. (laughs) I I support community gardens and locally owned restaurants and shops. (laughs) Are you are you weird? Unlike Austin, we don't manufacture our weirdness. It's just baked in naturally up in Portland like the weirdness grows on you like a moss or a fungus so it's hard to get rid of what do you do for a living I'm a paralegal I love it I love detail-oriented work and I just sit in my cubicle and I listen to my podcast and I review files <laughs> um oh I'm also an oil painter and I've been Ooh, invited to some galleries a phenomenal so. artist I've seen really some- it's amazing yes thank you yes I do um pop surrealism portraiture and abstract expressionism but the good kind of abstract expressionism not okay. the pretty kind uh, so really I'm an oil painter yeah <laughs> oh very hot take yeah and I recently got invited to show to submit in New York and I also got invited to submit locally so it's- that is so cool thank oh my you. gosh yeah. What kind of reader are you and what role does reading play in your life? So when I was growing up, I was homeschooled and I went to the library almost every single day and the librarians knew me. So I would check out, you know, 20 books, whatever the max amount of books I could check out in a day, I would. And I would go to the architecture section, the culture section, fiction, nonfiction, adult, whatever. Reading has just been like the way that I educate myself about the wider world. For me, the library was freedom. Nowadays, I read to relax. So I read on my lunch break every day. Do you do a lot of reading in your paralegal work? Well, it's all legal writing. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very dense. And I, yeah. I understand it, but it's not inspired. <laughs> yeah. It's a different type of exercise and I enjoy it. But like in my life, like I read eight books at a time. So all okay. the books I'm reading are competing constantly. Like right now, I'm also reading a book about Sun Ra. And I'm reading a book about Japanese garden history. And I'm reading a book about... uh gender inside the brain. So it's interesting. What book have you recommended for us today and why? Oh, yes. So today I recommended Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthony Doerr because I actually finished it. <laughs> My sister recommended it to me and she she's always reading like top 10 bestseller type books. And, you know, she she's on like the new stuff. I thought it was really a beautiful take on the importance of books mm-hmm. and how important it is to preserve them and send them, you know, through time mm-hmm. for future generations. I don't know if Claire mentioned this to you when she said, okay, Sarah wants us to read Cloud Cuckoo Land. She and I both went and ordered a book and I got this book. Oh, Yeah. So I got this book by Harold Penrose. It was published copyright 1981 by the Air Life Publishing Company in Shrewsbury, England. He is an aviation writer. His whole perspective is from the sky and he's in the middle of like a human machine and he's having this very sort of like William Wordsworth kind of reflections, you know, because it, it, it does literally pull you up and then drop you back down, which is literally what romantic poetry does. But it's so far off and yet related. 
um, Claire, I, you said your book was, I can't yeah, remember the so this author's is, name. Uh, this is called Kukulin by Louise Stradling. And this is about apartheid South Africa. Oh, wow. That's so awesome. Yeah. It's basically about racial relations mm-hmm. in the time period. How long did it take you guys to realize you were reading the wrong books? So we, we didn't read them. We didn't read them. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We realized that after ordering... It wasn't until I think my book showed up at home. You know, we compare our, our covers and it was at the step that we were like, something's not right. Yeah. <laughs> actually, as I was reading the one that my sister gave me, I actually got confused because I didn't realize that Cloud Cuckoo Land is an ancient fairy tale. Like this is this concept mm-hmm. of Cloud Cuckoo Land has existed for thousands mm-hmm. and thousands of years. Mm-hmm. So when I like started to get, I was like, you know, they keep mentioning Diogenes and like all this like historical stuff. And I was like, Wait a second, is this like a real thing? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. What is that other, it was a film, but it was also a novel, is Cloud Atlas? Yes. Which From 2004. I, yeah, because when I first bought this, I thought it was referencing Cloud Atlas. And the Me lady too. at Barnes & Noble kind of was snooty and was like, no, it's not. And I was like, it's like, dang, Deborah, you could be a little nicer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm calling oh, out Deborah. She's rude. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't read Cloud Atlas, but I know a little bit about it because it's been, it's almost 20 years old. And they made the movie with like a fuck ton of famous people. Halle Berry's in it. Tom Hanks is in it. And they actually each play people in different timelines. different So it's set up a lot like Cloud Cuckoo Land, which we'll, we'll get into with the different timelines happening and being told. And there is different, there's like historical fiction, there's contemporary fiction, there's science fiction and metafiction. It's all about kind of, like you said, not just the importance of books, but also their, their role and like how they move through these spaces and through time. And also I like how this Cloud Cuckoo Land that we're reading doesn't like support dog-eat-dog capitalism above everything else. Fuck Ayn Rand. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, fuck Ayn Rand. That put that out there. <laughs> um, no, yeah. our book has a much more wholesome, hopeful uh, mm-hmm. narrative. It makes me want to read Cloud Atlas, although I've heard it's pretty long. So that might be like, yeah, there's know. definitely pas- passages. You're going to be like, OK, you've, you've restated this idea like three. OK, different- so you have read it then. Um, Just a little bit to roast it. That's <laughs> Reading things to roast them. I yeah. love it. Libraries open. <laughs> I mean, the only thing that's uh, that I need to roast about it is that in the movie version, Tom Hanks is like an insane Southern accent in the future. He just sounds like he's making fun of Cajun people. Like, <laughs> but I... <laughs> Hanks defamation. Yeah. <laughs> this is a really heavily layered story, both literally and how it's written. Concurrently throughout the novel, as we said, we have three different timelines, four different timelines, really. A boy and a girl in the mid-15th century during the siege of, of Constantinople, when it's still Christian, and then it's one of the switches over back to Islam. <laughs> to be honest with you, that happened so many times, I don't even remember if it ended up going back to being Christian before it became Muslim again. The Hagia Sophia is in ruins, and we have two, a boy and a girl on opposite sides of this conflict. Mm-hmm. We have then Zeno Ninis, in the mid 20th century, yes, let's all take a moment to touch our hearts for <laughs> Zeno Ninis, who is first generation immigrant child from a dad from Italy. He has no mother. He kind of seems to be chasing this mother figure throughout mm-hmm. his life. And he becomes eventually after like a very you know difficult time in Korea and coming to terms with his queerness, his queer identity, eventually in as an older man, um, finds a copy of this of this cloud cuckoo land that has kind of floated through the the 15th century storyline as well and gets carried through and then makes somehow makes his way to him through like an it's an archaeological discovery they make right Mm -hmm. yeah they find the codex and then he ends up translating it for a a community theater play with children and then we have another storyline that happens also in idaho where zeno is living but in our current day, it starts in 2002, moves through 2020. February 20th, 2020 is a key date in the book. And this is where Seymour, Stoolman, he there has a... Sensory overload or an Asperger's. He's definitely exactly spectrum. High function yeah. spectrum. And he's, he's extremely perceptive to sounds specifically. Mm-hmm. And struggle to how do you say it like attach with like people like yes communication is difficult it's interesting to see how he does have a support group it's not a perfect it's an imperfect one his single mother living in a double wide she can't provide that much and so then it's obviously the manifestation of all of his frustrations 
but they come to a head in this sort of deep ecology extremism. Friend. And the owl, don't forget his trusty owl friend. friend. Yeah, trusty friend, because he watches Starboy growing up, so he loves trusty friend, which is the owl character, and then he meets an actual owl, and he loses his friend due to human development, and then a bunch of vacation homes get built in the territory that this owl is living in. Eventually, by the time it's the 20th of February, 2020, Seymour is a teenager. He's about 16 or 17. And he goes to the library, which is where Zeno and the kids are practicing for their community theater play based on this cloud cuckoo land myth um, that has been translated and also completed by Zeno because there's so much missing from the codex over time, which I think is a very beautiful kind of palimpsestuous sort of reworking of a story. I, I think it's really cool when you look at like old, old tapestries and you can see which parts were redone and reworked by someone else. They have like a different stitch. They have a different manner. And I felt like that you could see that, especially in this, in the excerpts of the Cloud Cuckoo Land that are interspersed throughout the beginning of each chapter. Mm-hmm. You can even, I don't know if you noticed the text is a little bit different. The, the, the font, they've got serifs where letters don't normally have them as well. I don't know if this is some sort of translation jargon or I'm, I'm not familiar enough with how that work takes place to know why, but it was mm-hmm. a visual indicator for me, which I thought was interesting. And so Seymour has by this point been radicalized by some online Q type figure who says human beings are the destructors of the earth. That's all we do. We need to look towards the future. We need things that we don't want to create destruction, but if a few people die along the way, that's okay. Right. Mm -hmm. And so Seymour has a book bag with two pressure cookers um, and bombs prepared in the library. Seymour's timeline mostly freezes around that date and like, Mm -hmm is told interspersed throughout. Basically what happens is Zeno at 86 years old, saves everyone in the library, takes the book, takes the book bag, excuse me, runs out of the library before the fifth ring because Seymour tells him the bomb will explode on the fifth ring. He's having his regrets and he's spoken to Zeno. And they have very similar names in a weird way, Seymour and Zeno, like almost one zero and one is you see more and he literally hears more. Oh, that's beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) With Zeno, I thought it was interesting too. Like Zero was a, a, an epithet for Italian Americans. It's also an interesting kind of like because it it sounds like zenith as well. So it sounds like yeah. this sort of peak. And he reaches his peak at the end. He's actually realizes how happy he's had of his life despite his regrets with his one great love mm-hmm. in the army that he wasn't. You know, well he he dies, but it's also it's nosos. It's that uh, whole experience of homecoming that comes back throughout the whole thing. It's a Greek term, nosos, n o s t o s, just homecoming or the song of the homecoming which is like super tenuous for me because I always feel like maybe Homer like decided Ulysses get makes it home or maybe he didn't and then somebody else was like nah Penelope and Telemachus just have to create their own new version and that's what she weaves into the end and like that's why we get this version Mm-hmm. You know, because like we're already watching in Cloud we're watching an old myth change over time. Yeah. 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 For sure. So oh. it, it made me think of that. But then the final the timeline. Well, oh, so we do see Seymour move into the future. Mm-hmm. He he pays his debts he, to society. He goes to prison as good behavior. He starts working, cleaning up a database, of, which is essentially Google Street View on crack. It's all the horrible, horribly tracked images of the world and like the suffering that we're going through. And he's cleaning it up and making it look pretty for this company named Ilium, who is also the first, the producer of the first uh, tablet he got, the first phone he got, the first like everything. They're kind of slowly creeping their way around. And then about 40 years after the fact, he invites the children that he, that were at the library that night who are now adults and with their families. And he gives them a recreated copy of Zeno's work, which was never published publicly and so each of these children has a copy oh. and then one of those children now adult she gives that copy to her son and she lives in australia and that, her grandson and that grandson when he's 12 years old new timeline applies to join a mission to go to a new planet and it was it's a mission that's going to take about five or six generations to get to and so then he goes to greenland everyone on that mission is roofied Mm-hmm. And then supposedly shot into space. Mm-hmm. And the storyline focuses more now on his daughter, Constance, with a K, Constantinople, Constance, also just like, mm-hmm. and this is, you know, happening in 
the not so distant future. I think it's like within the next 200 years of our future is when it's meant to be. Mm-hmm. And they're in this very close up shuttle. It sounds awful. There's no where- windows. They can't see out. They just have yeah. a computer, which is like an Alexa that talks to them and feeds them and does it. Sybil. Yeah. yeah. Cool. In, in mythology, Sybil is a seer which is interesting because she can't see everything. They think that the computer knows everything, but she doesn't. Mm -hmm. And then when people start dying, the computer doesn't know why until Constance's dad just MacGyvers the fuck out of the situation and shoves her into the vault with the only physical manifestation of Sybil. I don't know if you notice this. Everywhere else on that ship, you only hear her voice. Mm -hmm. And they only talk about seeing her visually in vault one, where Mm -hmm. Constance is stuck for over a year, Mm -hmm. almost. She decides to just keep going into the library that Sybil shows them, which has this Google street view in the form of what they call an atlas. But I think it's interesting. They actually walk into a giant atlas and then they're on earth. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Right? Honestly, like, this book, every, this book constantly gave me goosebumps as I was reading it because like, like you said, like Constance, Constantinople, mm-hmm. like there's so many echoes through the timeline mm-hmm, right. where you like feel like a kind of like, oh, this, this is a memory, an echo, mm-hmm. like things are moving to the future. It's really mm-hmm. And if you like think of Constantinople, the city itself is like it has had so much history as Constantinople, but now it is Istanbul. It is different. It is something new. It was changed so much. But also, I think in the Western world, especially now, those of us who went through the U.S. educational system, you escaped that in homeschooling and hopefully had a better background in, in history than we did, which I mean, I know this now, but growing up, I didn't I don't think I understood how <laughs> advanced civilization was before the western world caught up you know and, oh yeah and, but like and how much we lost when oh, yes. when that when that city fell like yeah um, so it's interesting that her name is constance when like you know she has access to this you know library and you know it's, it's mm-hmm. so interesting yeah. yeah and i also noticed like in chapters like at the end of a chapter it would have like a phrase or like like a, a pattern a speech pattern and in the very next chapter on a different timeline it would mm-hmm. echo that speech pattern doer likes to do that he likes to end with a big truth and then hop back in with that truth but as something more banal Dora does that, like he does that on a, a language level. That's something I'm going to nitpick about later in a good way. Mm-hmm. I don't know, in a bad way, I guess. I don't know. I can, I'm a, I'm a right to roast. Uh, <laughs> what are we here for? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Read It and Roast, where we speak politely about your recommendations. <laughs> I think Constance's storyline for me was the most interesting. And then to totally spoil everything, because we've kind of pretty much spoiled everything else. Well, the two, the boy and the girl who are on the opposite ends of the of the war in Constantinople escape. And this girl, she's actually been climbing the walls of the Hagia Sophia to grab different texts. And that's how she ends up with the codex. Her name is Anna. She's she's Greek. Um, and then I'm not positive how to pronounce his name. It's, the audiobook said Omeir. Omeir, okay. And he's originally from, is it Hungary? He's Muslim. And, she, and he also has a cleft palate. So his whole life, he's just been absolutely rejected. But he has this gift with animals and that's how he ends up you know with his oxen helping in the war effort and in escaping the inevitable fall of the city they meet and then they go back to this this ravine that omir is from originally and they live out 40 50 years of it 40 years together 50 years peaceful life they have children they keep the codex hidden but omir has this belief that the codex has magical powers first of all he doesn't read he also doesn't speak greek and then anna when she does eventually when they do eventually learn to speak to each other once she's already living in the ravine and falling for him though they kind of rush over the their relation i, I appreciated that they rushed over those facts because sometimes we have a tendency to harp on them he starts to understand because she starts to translate it she's learned his language and then like when their their son is ill she reads to him just like she did when her sister was ill during the fall of the city and then after she dies he takes it, the codex from its safe place and he sends it to italy where before in the modern era we've been talking about oh no one knows how the codex ended up in urbino like how did it end up in italy if it's originally you know as it turns out constance's father or had that copy of the book that was made for his grandmother by seymour and he has left it on his night table and that's how constance discovers this myth that her dad has been telling her but is a book that has not been published because it exists in this tiny tiny print um five five editions like oh my goodness how valuable would that be especially at the end of of humanity yeah Mm -hmm. and then in there she finds easter eggs Mm -hmm. these little owls every time she touches an owl that she sees and she can see the real world and what it really looks like and the horrifying horrifying realities of the planet they left and she's also discovering that there's just no scientific evidence or literature to prove that the mission she's on is going to work that it was earth 
or that it left Earth. Yeah. And I felt this like from the beginning. I was super suspicious of Sybil. And then there's this whole story of the guy that they're always told like crazy so and so tried to whack his way out of the out of the Argos, almost killing everybody. You know, you're going to be sucked out and killed. And of course, finally, she, like her dad, MacGyver's out her tools, knocks a hole in the side of the Argos, falls out into Connacht, Greenland. Yeah. Never left. She never left the planet. Everyone else is dead. Mm-hmm. And then we don't know how, but somehow she ends up on a different island. And she has a life and she has a baby and she has another kid. And she has the version of the story that she wrote down on her, the scraps of her food wrappings. Yeah. And that's she the makes book. Ink. Like yeah. it's cool because, you know, inside the Argos, it's all technic- technology sleep, mm-hmm. like Apple like. And she had to learn how to make mm-hmm. ink from her food and wrappers and she actually constructs a physical book which doesn't even exist but i thought it was interesting that sybil couldn't tell her how to make ink because she had to experiment mm. yeah D- dora probably wanted to present instances of like sybil not knowing everything yeah like poke yeah. holes in that yeah that's true but he does a good job of like hinting at all these little things he wants you to figure out towards the end. Mm-hmm. what sarah was saying about like her learning to write these things i think it's interesting because the library version that digital library version that she goes to with sybil in the ship wearing the vr headset she writes her questions that's the way that this database works is you have to write a question and submit it that way and yet she doesn't have the muscle memory and function in her physical self to write she has to practice writing but she's yeah. been writing her whole life in vr classes she has to walk around on the perambulator like so they have to render the physical space available to her somehow to be able to experience it and yet these just these actions that she's making in the space somehow are not in tuned to her body's well, i always habits. imagined her as typing i always oh. imagined her as typing mm-hmm. on because in the library they gave her like they talk about like tablet kind of objects, I think. Oh, so maybe she was and just so typing. So I always imagined that they were like typing. I Oh, wait, no, no. Because there there is a scrap of paper. That's how they search the atlas. Mm-hmm. Is they get a scrap yeah. of paper and they write on it. But you're right. That is weird. Like there's no physical mm-hmm. memory because mm-hmm. when she was finally writing the physical book, her hand would cramp. Yeah. It's also an interesting comparison between like, you know, digital media and how like, you know, it could all mm-hmm. blow away just like Alexandria, like the library mm-hmm. of Alexandria it could all blow away if like, enough systems falter mm-hmm. but like a physical object you know it might yeah. last longer it just depends it, it could all disappear but well there's three of those it's like is the digital gonna last is the physical like inanimate mm-hmm. gonna last or is the biological organic gonna last and and the answer is none of them right mm-hmm. that... oh i actually have a quote from the book that's really beautiful uh, oh yeah let's hold hear up. It. it actually talks directly about that but okay. i i particularly like anthony doer's like type mm-hmm. of prose it's very poetic it's very emotional, I think. Um, Let's see. Okay, here it is. But books like people die. They die in fires or floods or in the mouths of worms mm. or at the whims of tyrants. If they are not safeguarded, they go out of the world. And when a book goes out of the world, the memory dies a second death. Damn. <laughs> Even going back from like the early, earlier stories, like the Constantinople uh, timelines up to you know, the futuristic storylines we have, like all in the end, all we have is the oral tradition and how that oral tradition Mm -hmm. is modified. And yeah. He's really focused on the oral tradition in his writing, like four pages from the end. It's right before the last Canuck chapter in 2146. Zeno is running out of the library with the backpack and it says he runs through the snow and for the fifth time, the phone rin. Oh, that's beautiful. He is like hard on his diction. There's so many times where he blends senses. Claire told me that you're reading currently All the Light We Cannot See. Yeah, which is also very good. I haven't finished it. I'm only like five chapters in, but I can already tell. I can tell it's the same author. Okay. Yes. I read that too. And I didn't put the name together I just didn't even think about it got the correct version of Cloud Cuckoo Land opened it up and I'm like I read this before (laughs) (laughs) yeah not not necessarily in a bad way but he is he just has like you say like such a distinct voice and he loves to use symbolism and echoes and really weaves it in and out Mm -hmm. all over the place his chapter structure I think it's successful in some places Mm -hmm. i think in cloud cuckoo land it just frustrated me Mm -hmm. 
all the light we cannot see is very clearly concerned with the power of the story mm-hmm. and also um, the act of learning to read. One of the main characters is a blind girl and her father works in a library in Paris and he's managed to get her books in Braille and teach her Braille and stuff. But this is World War II. Like it starts right before the war and then it happens mostly during the war. There are a lot of similarities between what? this book and and All the Light. And I don't... Also, I just want to point out that Alex yeah. uh, has like a book and it has like 10,000 posts oh, inside yeah. of it. <laughs> like she did her homework. I'm so impressed. I read most of it yesterday. I had 40 pages read and then I read all day yesterday. And then this morning I finished last 20. Wow. And seriously, no, but it's not that dense because the it's chapters amazing. are yeah. short. You well, know, I got like- to tell you, uh, actually, I didn't get this. When did I get this? I, actually, I think my sister gave it to me in the summertime. I don't know. She's always shipping me books and stuff. Oh, but I've been reading this book over the period of about five months for like okay. 15 minutes a day on my lunch break. So I feel like I was reading this in real time. Yeah. Oh my God. I <laughs> so bet. I'm, I'm really curious to see how your experience reading, speed reading it would compare to someone like yeah. me reading it slowly because, because I got to say for a lunch break book, this is a great book because you can read yeah. one chapter per lunch break and That's you so think true. about it and reflect on it. And then the next day you go to the next chapter. I love that. Yeah. I kind of oscillated back and forth between the the text the text and the audiobook. Yeah. Uh, which I think was really interesting because like I mean when I first started reading it, I was like, oh, I actually don't know how to pronounce some of these things, like the Greek, okay. like Omayer's name. And then I get to the audiobook and it like seems a little more seamless and like I can kind Ooh. of feel his like story move in a little different way. And mm-hmm. I yeah, so I mean I recommend the audiobook. I do think that in reading the physical book, um, you get some of the breaks that he's uh, intentionally placed mm-hmm. in the book mm-hmm. like the the chapter structures and like yeah. there, there are like sections and um you know like sections of the codex and I think I feel like you do kind of lose some of that in the audiobook yeah your favorite character was the girl inside Constantinople I just forgot her name Anna Anna that was my least favorite character and oh, I'm think- curious okay. what Claire's favorite character was oh did you have a favorite I did um mm-hmm. I don't know I mean I think like maybe Anna Okay. Yeah, because I mean, like, I feel like her, like her, and especially her. I think her initial story really got me was like how she like traded stolen wine for learning. You know, and yeah, know, something about cool. that like really like you know. Oh, and she gets her quicksilver for her sister, like fifteen hundreds yeah. medicine. Oh. Yeah, I think my favorite. To be honest, I think my favorite was Constance. I thought Anna was oh, interesting. Constance. Okay, sorry, but as far as characters go, but Anna was an interesting story. Anna has a real like pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of thing. And she doesn't even know it. She's not what. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I'm not saying, and I'm not saying that's something yeah. that we need to yeah. congratulate in people, but it is a matter of fact, you know, that yeah. she's like, my sister and I will make it to a better place. Yeah. Her sister makes it to a better place, but it's the afterlife. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're going to assume it's a better place, she chooses to decide that she's in a better place. Omeyer sort of ties her up so that people think that she's a stolen woman and no one's going to take her from him but once she kind of gets to that place of peace where he's originally from and then she makes it there and she realizes that her journey to a better place which every character in this book is concerned with I think maybe hers is the most literal accessible (laughs) oh yeah Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, accessible and literal she's in poverty she's working every day she's a child having to take care of herself as an adult and other people which Reminds me about Anthony Joy. That's I think he has a thing for orphans and children yeah. with family issues. He has so many children yeah. with only one parent. So Omeyer's dad gets killed because he has a cleft palate and his parents refuse to, to kill him, right? And the villagers think that he's magical, whatever. Anna, who grows up, she's it's not a it's not like a monastery she's living in. She's but she's like stitching for with a bunch of nuns. Yeah, basically. She's, yeah. yeah, the nuns are like stitching the honorary robes for the priests. Mm-hmm. She's, she's kind of a nun, not really. And like one of the lines that she, they, they said like um everyone she knows will be either enslaved or dead. Yeah. Know? So like, it's clear that like, she is not from like, it's clear she's in a certain level of society and all that. Mm-hmm. Stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like her and Omir went independently, they decide to run away before the final siege of the city. Yeah. It's yeah. both for reasons that are like, Omir's is all the ox boys who no longer have animals to pull weight with because his oxen have died let's just take a moment for that where the redfern grows moment that i did not need to relive four times over in this book (laughs) two dogs die one -hmm. gets left without an owner but needs to be let out like heroic xeno but nonetheless Mm -hmm. and then 
two oxen die with whom Omer has like a very <laughs> connected relationship. Then there's there's Constance too. She has a, a parent who is there, but then a parent who is also fully drank all of the Kool-Aid and believes that she's on her way to this new planet and that only the information that Sybil gives you is good and that it is good that they genetically modified humans to modify imagination out of our system. Mm-hmm. Her dad obviously has a different approach and he's like, nah, I think it's cool if we just throw a little bit of haphazard randomness into nature. That's mm-hmm. how she works and that's how it is. I love his Which garden. Is- yeah, yeah. Yeah. His hydroponic garden yeah. in the future is yeah. really noble. But at the same time, his hydroponic garden in the future is also so unnatural and so unreal in that he's combining biospheres together. She yeah. has a, is it a Bulgarian pine? And that's sort of like the tree that she grows from when she's little. And it's, she mm-hmm. sees it in the Argos growing. And then she grows one on Kanak, or maybe not Kanak, but the island next to Kanak in, in Greenland, where she ends up settling in the in the survivor's village. Greenland specifically is a really, really delicate biosphere. Currently unstable. I'm assuming in 200 years when she's there, the stability is. It might be the last livable place on earth for all we know in that. Yeah. That's in that timeline. Yeah. I mean, like if you think about Greenland's isolated by ocean, so it's hard to get to too. So if like society's collapsing and transportation's collapsing, that's a pretty good place to. (laughs) But it could also go underwater. That's true. That's true. Yeah. But like my favorite character was Seymour. Oh, the eco terrorist. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm also on the spectrum and I have light sensitivity and sound, extreme sound sensitivity. And also like growing up in Portland, Oregon, like we, Mm -hmm. we've been recycling since like the eighties. I mean, we've been on our shit for a long time. And when I moved away from Portland, Oregon, I was shocked by how much I moved from Portland to Texas. That'll tell Mm. you you need to know. Mm -hmm. I was shocked by how no one gives a crap about the environment. It was extremely depressing. And, you know, a couple of years ago, the UN released a report saying, like, if we don't get our shit together in 10 years, the runaway greenhouse effect will take effect. I'm pretty sure that so, was the report that Seymour does his summer book report on. Yeah, I think okay. so. Yeah. And, and Yeah. Yeah. And so like the day that UN report came out, I sobbed at work because I felt like nobody cared. And yeah. I, I, I just relate so strongly to Seymour on so many levels. I promise I won't blow up a library, but (laughs) he has a lot of good points. Mm -hmm. There's another quote. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Just about the whole eco-terrorism and world decaying. Okay. By age 17, he, quote, Seymour Stolman, convinced himself that every human being he saw was a parasite, captive to the dictates of consumption. But as he reconstructs Zeno's translation, he realizes that the truth is infinitely more complicated. That we are all beautiful, even as we are part of the problem, and that to be part of the problem is to be human. So in all the light we cannot see, we have a girl who is profoundly blind. I think I don't remember if she's born blind or if she becomes blind as a child. And then we have Omer, who has a cleft palate. And then we have Seymour, who is somewhere on the autism spectrum. And then we have Constance, who also genetically can be potentially special because I feel like even if there's genetic modification, the fact that her dad was born on on earth, he's one of the few Argos members who remembers earth. And he seems to want to be throwing in randomness and like, he wants to throw a wrench in the system that society did. I think I feel like he might've done something. And so that, that might have affected why she, perhaps why she still has imagination. So we have all these like special children Zeno's was the one that I thought was interesting because queerness and erasure go hand in hand so much, especially yeah. in the time period he grows up in. I'm not trying to get like super neoliberally upset mm-hmm. about bringing people with like um, atypical, you know, neuro profiles in or or physical profiles in. Is it becoming a crutch for Doer to just constantly bring this in? And then, I mean, it's like the orphan. Yeah, okay. A lot of literature is centered around orphans because a lot of stories are about finding ourselves. And that's a physical and very human manifestation of finding yourself is finding your family, you know? Mm -hmm. But like, at what point do we still need to (laughs) depend on that to propel a story? Thank you for bringing this up, Alex. Have either of you read The Overstory by Richard Powers? No. Sounds good. It's about different people's experiences with trees, essentially. It also won a Pulitzer Prize. I did not like the overstory. I read it out of, I finished it out of spite. (laughs) I just feel like uh, there's a lot of similarities between Richard Powers' 
the way he writes and, and Anthony Doerr. I liked Cloud Cuckoo Land more than the Overstory mm-hmm. for sure, but I feel like they are popular for the same reasons. Mm-hmm. They both like to use very similar types of characters mm-hmm. to propel their stories. Like one of the um, one of the characters that I feel Anthony Powers, uh, sorry, uh, Richard Powers did not do well in the Overstory uh, uses a wheelchair, has developmental disabilities. There's also a lot of similarities that they have within the way they construct their stories. Um, they both use nonlinear timelines. They go back and forth between different perspectives and chapters. Which and, can uh, work sometimes, but I think he did it too much in Cloud Cuckoo Land. Okay, I but that is, that is part of my roast. So the essence of my roast with this book comes from also my experience reading this book. So nonlinear timelines and flashbacks and all that are not new. It's not a new concept, but it's getting a lot of attention when mm-hmm. certain authors do it. Don Quixote did it first. Right. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He didn't? Oh, damn. No. Cervantes, he wasn't the first. He just took the picaresque novel and then he just got really popular with it. But sorry. (laughs) He was one of the first. And speaking of the power of stories, that is a story that has survived. And that's why we remember it as the first. Mm. Ah, beautiful. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. The the essence of what I'm trying to say is that, like, I have an issue with, like, when, when a certain tradition is, like, picked up by certain types of authors and then suddenly celebrated for that you know and like um especially in their use of certain types of characters yeah i'm like why are you getting attention for this you weren't yeah. the first person to do it <laughs> it feels cash doing- grabby yeah so <laughs> if you think about it a good few years ago another timeline hopping novel the hours won the 1999 pulitzer prize for fiction and if you have not read the hours i highly recommend it and it also jumps around timelines it jumps around three different timelines one of the timelines is a rewriting of a virginia wolf novel mrs alloway another timeline is like in the mid 50s and then another one is in the 1990s and so it's just these three different periods of the 20th century and he he jumps a lot around in that one like the chapters in that one are pretty short as well and they're even shorter and sometimes I feel like it's been a minute so I may be misremembering but I feel like sometimes you just get a few paragraphs a few lines before it jumps back but it's contained within three timelines within 100 years mm-hmm. sometimes it's been done before and it can be do- done a little bit better I think it's done really well in all the light we cannot see that mm-hmm. jumping between characters but all the light once again is more contained as far as time and number of characters mm-hmm. but like my biggest critique was like I was literally almost 400 pages deep and all I wanted was to get back to Constance and find out what happened with oh, her. Oh, I know, right? And it's also funny, too, because, like, the bomb from Seymour gets introduced fairly early on. And then you're kind of left with, like, a bomb that's gonna go off for, mm-hmm. like, a lot of the book. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I, I'm just realizing now that bomb going off is also, like, our ecosystem being destroyed. Yeah. Like, it's a yeah. slow trudging. It's gonna mm-hmm. happen. When's it gonna happen? When they talk so much about stretching time in the book, especially Anna, because she's reflecting on the lessons that she was given by the first person who taught her to read, that stories are a way of stretching time and manipulating time. We get the story about Seymour planting the bomb in the library pretty quickly. We know that a shooting has happened in the library when it jumps into Zeno as a child. I kind of forgot that all that, that he was the one with the kids practicing while this is happening in the library. So the chapters about Seymour in the library, the 20th of February, 2020, are almost as long as some of the other chapters, but they only ever cover moments. Yeah. I think Dor is a structuralist mm-hmm. because he's already, like we talked about, he manipulated the text to play with your senses. Mm-hmm. And Claire and I were talking about this yesterday, how to phrase one of the questions we had for you. Mm-hmm. Is, do we call it a story? Or do we call it a text? Text for me is like a very loaded word. So a story, right. so is narrative. For Anthony Doerr, I think even as just casual readers, as casual discussion havers of this book, it's important to note that difference because he's showing you that the text is not the story. The story yeah. is not the text, but they live together. We are not the story. The story is not us, but it lives within us and with us. I wanted to point out Ceremony by Leslie Marmon Silco. Have you ever read that? Yes, I have. Yeah, that is I a love... lovely book. An amazing book published in 1977. Mm-hmm. It's very acclaimed now, but I feel mm-hmm. like it kind of reclaimed as sort of this movement to add marginalized voices to canonical literature. It does nonlinear timelines very well yeah. and is a very wonderful instance of marginalized people creating these kinds of stories mm-hmm. and creating a wonderful piece of, of literature yeah. and, and not receiving you know, Pulitzer Prize and and type attention for it, you know. I'm remembering this because it was a book that marked me heavily when I read it. For sure. Um, If not for the fact that I saw some copies that had Plains Indians on the covers when this is about the Pueblo Nations. You know, let's just... 
classic. Just throw us all in the same basket. We appreciate <laughs> it. Using nonlinear timelines, Silco is pulling from a very non-Western tradition as well for as sure. storytelling. She's pulling from creation myths. Yes. It actually reminds me a lot of Green Grass Running Water, Thomas King. And that's from 1993. There's a lot of this too, where they're pulling from that to kind of confuse time. And it's a different tradition, not only organizi- organizing the story, organizing the the act of sharing the story, but then the way that time is understood as a result of these things, because in our Western society that is so heavily based on like ideas post-Renaissance, the Cartesian plane of space and our time being spatial. And these are ideas that we have inherited. Earlier in the book, they quote Locke, John, I think it's John Locke. And it was an it was an ecological theory. And they bring it up multiple times. They pull it out from the Christian tradition of go forth and prosper and dominate the earth and subdue the earth and the animals to yourself in this idea that like humans above animals. However, he's critical of Seymour's deep ecology, or at least the narrative voice is not agree that it's okay if a few people die because you want to be an extremist and push for this. But the whole thing goes into this idea that we can live with nature and we can push it. And like, that's the goal. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really reductive. Hmm. So I try to look at not just how is the earth and nature and all these things being represented and that relationship too, like, uh, especially in Western literature, a lot of it is undoing this uh, Judeo-Christian and Cartesian idea of human dominance. But the opposite is also not a reality either. We're not going to just be able to manage a harmonious relationship with nature. Like there is no such thing as a harmonious nature either. That's an invention that we have created because peace and war are human inventions as well. It's extremes on the same line. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just getting like tired of the answer being that's okay. We're going to handle it. And I know that to be part of the problem is to be human, Mm -hmm. but to be part of the problem doesn't mean you can't be part of a solution. And also that kind of ties in and into how the art, the solution for mm-hmm. the people was to leave the planet. But in reality, the solution is this is our only planet. And to censor what you know. Yeah. So that yeah. you can live in blissful ignorance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They were hoping by five generations on, they wouldn't even know they were on the same planet. They assumed that the way that uh, pollution and societal collapse was going, that by yeah. five generations on, you wouldn't even recognize the planet as the same place, which is kind of fucked up. Oh, and then also the concept of cloud cuckoo land is this idealized far off thing in the sky that you dream about and pine about and mm-hmm. hope after and lust after. Um, and every character in the story has something that they are pining mm-hmm. after. Like Seymour wants a world where... You can live on a commune and have a hot girlfriend and be (laughs) friends with owls. Anna wants her sister to be healthy and safe. They don't want to have to slave away in a sewing room. Like everyone wants something desperately Mm -hmm. that they can't have. And Except for Omir. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. Omir actually just wants someone. He says in the book, he says, everyone I've ever been close to, I cannot communicate with. But it's cute too, because like in Cloud Cuckoo Land, there's also the folios that Diogenes wrote about literally actually cloud cuckoo land the story Mm -hmm. and he's like he turns into a bird he turns into a donkey he finally flies up to cloud cuckoo land the place he's been trying to get to and Mm -hmm. that's where the folio kind of disintegrates and disappears yeah and you don't quite understand what is cloud cuckoo land what is there and then does he choose to stay or does he choose to leave it's Mm -hmm. unknowable it's unknowable yeah Yeah. that fantasy is unknowable and kind of Mm -hmm. unattainable but in each story I think each character does attain a kind of satisfaction, just not in the mm-hmm. way they thought they would. For sure. Their own nostos. That is such a cool world word. What is that? Nostos? The the song of homecoming. Oh, I need to I need to reread that. Read the Emily Wilson version. Yeah, I haven't read that since I was in high school. <laughs> That's why with the Odyssey, I have this question. Does somebody just slap on a different ending? Because it's a whole other chapter. I'm sure Homer did test audiences for movies and then he got like feedback and he was like, ah, people want a happy ending. Yeah. And I love how in Cloud Cuckoo Land and Zeno's storyline, like, you know, his whole life, he's like this closeted gay man who's dealing with these feelings, unfulfilled romances, unfulfilled mm-hmm. dreams of a life he could have had. And then at the very end, when he finally gets these folios and his dream lover has passed away and it's mm-hmm. his folios that he receives. And mm-hmm. so it's like this sacred object. And he's like, oh, I'm not translating this right. It's not quite right. It's not it's not accurate. I don't know if I'm doing this. I'm guessing. And then eventually after he interacts with the children, he realizes, 
oh it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be so academic it can be more yeah. poetic and so he kind of like leans into like the feeling and the poetry and then he gets some kind of fulfillment which is that's oh, when the beautiful. that's when the translation for him really is really able progresses and then and yeah. then he starts working with the kids as a volunteer and and i yeah. if i remember correctly the kids help write a new story anyway. yeah they do they they're changing it while seymour is downstairs with the gun and the bomb they're changing the ending of their play because the folios they don't know which order they were in originally we see that omir after anna has passed away goes back to the hiding space he finds the the codex it's been damaged some so he pulls it out he cleans it he doesn't know which order it's in so he does his best and he puts it back together and then he walks off to like a far off big city i think it's i think it's istanbul or constantinople urbino yeah okay so he goes there and he sells it to some kind of like tr- uh, trader or whatever and the trader sees the codex and he's like oh shit this is like worth a lot and omir says all i want is for my horse to be fed and to sleep in the stable that's yeah. all i want you know because he's at the end of his journey his wife yeah. has passed his kids are grown and that kind of reminded me of Diogenes because Diogenes wants very little in life. He just wants to be a bird that flies away. You know, he doesn't want all the riches. I don't know. It's just so beautiful. Yeah. I really loved This book was so poetic. I don't yeah. know. I'm a sucker for poetry. Yeah. You know, there However, was- However, this was yeah. too long. <laughs> it was too long. It was too Page long. Page 344. I have Anna reading the thing out loud. She says, Anna crawls on the horsehair pallet, sits with Maria's head in her lap, the old manuscript open in front of them. The storm propels Aethon the crow past the moon and tumbles him into the blackness between the stars, period. There's not much left to go, period. And then I wrote, bitch, there's 229 pages to go. Dude, yeah, this book could have could have benefited from some editing down. Yes. It really could have. It was an interesting read. I didn't kick and scream at any point of it. There were just some chapters I was like, I really just want to get through this character just so I can get to the other. Yeah, like I almost wanted Omir and Anna's story to be reduced because Mm -hmm. it really is just the origin of the Codex. Well, not even the origin. We don't know where where it came, how it came to be at the Hagia Sophia before Anna collects it. But also Omir um, has no uh, personality in case you didn't notice. The only thing Mm -hmm. is that he's quiet, he's good with animals and nobody likes him and he just keeps to himself because he knows otherwise he might get kicked, killed, abused, whatever. Basically Omir's entire story until he meets Anna is him watching this motion of destruction towards Constantinople. I think I like the motion of destruction with the planet. Watching this slow force that you cannot stop. He's yeah. Seymour's counterpart who doesn't get ex- become extremist and just says things are not well, but I can observe them. And which is what I guess I wanted there to also, since this book wants to be like, oh, we're going to open out into like the possibilities and like not say there's this one solution, this one thing, we're just going to do our best. Seymour went into the extremist route Omir, who also was marginalized from society very much like Seymour, but instead doesn't come to this kind of realization of like, my concerns are very are anthropocentric. They're too anthropocentric, especially because Omir is the perfect person to do that with. He is most connected with animals and nature. From the beginning... I felt like I was reading something that I had already read. Mm-hmm. On page 17, I have a note that says, Jesus Christ, this reads like a Matt Hyde novel. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> wrote the Midnight, Midnight Library. Library. I'm reading that right now. That's so funny. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I've heard so many alternate, people either hate it or love it, it sounds like. That is so true. I think like Door, it's well-written. Like the writing is good. That doesn't mean you have mm-hmm. to like the book. The writing can be... Um, successful without it you know being a good story um i think the story has like really interesting elements but claire may i can i continue on midnight library um i'm midway through it but just okay i think that it might lead into some kind of like a literary reductive version of mindfulness and like accepting what fate has given you which this book does as well Mm -hmm. because in the midnight library and in this book a lot of what we're rebounding with is this idea that the grass is not always greener in fact the grass is yeah. not greener um and even if the grass isn't he is it even here maybe you can yeah. plant the grass mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. does that make sense yeah no yeah. that's totally true yeah no i i, I kept like med- like thinking on that phrase while i was reading like both the midnight library and this yeah like, is the grass greener? Like, yeah, what, yeah. Is, what even is the grass like you know <laughs> mm-hmm. also one other thing is like because it it is such a big book and there mm-hmm. are so many characters. It's kind of like a slow burn, which makes me a little hesitant to recommend it to everybody. It takes patience. It takes patience. It does. It does take patience. The library setup in 
that Sybil has for them on the Argos is a lot like the Midlight Library. Basically, the Midnight Library is the magical counterpart to Sybil's library, digital library. I was very curious and confused at how few answers we were getting. I feel like this is a very, very poorly taxonomy database. So that's a roast. That's a geeky roast, but it is a legitimate one. Mm-hmm. Anthony Doer, get a database specialist in next time. <laughs> the other book that this reminded me of, The Alchemist. And so the whole time I'm reading this, I was wondering too, because he wants to do this meta fictional thing, meta textual thing, is he doing this on purpose to like really being like, let's bring all this, let's try to look like a lot of books that came out in the past couple of years? Because it almost seems, um, you think so, Claire? I see you kind of like nodding, I mean, shrugging, but I. I- I yeah, I think there's a lot of like parallels going on between a lot of these authors we're talking about, yes. and um, which there always are. I mean, yeah. Neil sure. Gaiman and and a, a bunch of other people were writing Harry Potter like stories. Mm. Oh, for I sure. mean, Ursula Le Guin was the first one to do like the big yes. pop fiction. Yes, one. yes uh, <laughs> Ursula, thank you so much. <laughs> Second in our hearts, only to Octavia. But <laughs> I think that. Like other people were doing it. JK Rowling was just the one that hit gold. Like, and, yeah, and oh, that's sure. cool. That's fine. I mean, that's how it works. Like yeah. ideas are not vacuum. The can exist oh. in vacuum. I don't mean it as a critique, but the whole time I'm reading it, it made me think of other books and made me yeah. just want to follow the one storyline. Yeah. And then on top of that, Cloud Cuckoo Land, I don't know if y'all got this, but was like, I felt like I was getting fucked with a police baton on social commentary. Yes. Mm-hmm. It ha- the whole the world is poss- possibly going to explode on February 20th, 2020. And from this one moment, we also save the whole world and blah, blah, blah. And we have so much misinformation happening from our digital systems that are giving us blah, 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 this stuff. And like so much of it is just like, oh, my God, Bishop, the eco terrorist is Q. Seymour doesn't have people that he's you know going to believe in. He's being disenfranchised. He has legitimate ideas, but he's going to be pulled into this stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Is that the overstory? I mean, like, it's okay. tired. Yeah. It's tired, but it's also very relevant. It's oh, tired yeah. and relevant. It doesn't. And as to, I was yeah. reading it, I was like, I wish more people would wake up and read something mm-hmm. like this. Yeah. No, I'm definitely going to say like the overstory is a supplemental text to this episode because yeah. okay. it's this. I again similar. You could say the same about it. Yeah. I don't know. I guess I just always expected growing up reading the social commentary in fiction that you grew up reading in school. So like you read Dickens, blah, 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 this stuff. Read some Ayn Rand, of course, because I grew up in the South. But I, I don't know. I guess I expected to grow up and read social commentary in my time today in literature and not have it feel so blatantly obvious. Like it was the point of the book. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know what, actually? Yeah. This is very spoon fed for being very current like it is yes. extremely i mean mm-hmm. to set it in 2020 is very on the nose i mean uh, like two weeks before the world shut down but, right but but then again you read slaughterhouse five and it feels like it's about today also so, yeah well i mean some things are timeless when uh constance is in the library with sybil and everything she wants and we're, when she's in the atlas and she's exploring the world she can see things but most things she can't actually touch her hand passes right through them mm-hmm. and there's a moment towards the end when anna is reading the the codex to her son who is ill because you know there's this kind of like familial belief that it, it'll help them get through this time and she remembers reading it to her sister maria and she reaches out to touch maria but her hand passes right through her oh Damn. Yes. Like <laughs> this is okay. This is Kurt Vonnegut saying, and all yeah. the soldiers got dysentery, and there I was in the corner, and I was shitting. Or was it me? Or was it not? First question: Do you have a story in your life that holds meaning that you share with others? It can be written, oral, whatever. Yeah. Let me think. Oh man, that's a good one. We have a story um, in my family about my great grandmother Charlotte that's been mythologized because it's so awesome. Um, But she, back in the 1970s in Seattle, Washington, began the program that helped women get off the street and get like a new set of clothing and then teach them how to get interview skills so that they could get off the street and get get a job and then continue on with their life. And she also petitioned the city to make turn vacant lots into parks and all kinds of stuff. And then in the mid 70s, she did so much for the uh, Seattle, Washington that year that they named her man of the year. And then after that, they had to change it to person of the year. So she is a figure in my familial history that we talk Mm -hmm. about a lot and celebrate. That's really cool. What is your cloud cuckoo land? Oh man, I'm Seymour. 
<laughs> I want to live on a commune with my hot girlfriend. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I just, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not like the extreme Seymour type, but I think there, there are ways where we could reduce capitalism as like mm-hmm. not our ultimate goal and that we could preserve more mm-hmm. on the planet for those to come after us. So yeah. my utopia is to get rid of gerrymandering and like get some common sense policies in this country. Repeal Citizens United, please. actually yeah big roast for the fact that seymour's mom bunny could not afford his medication their rent and just like life i mean honestly seymour is the fact that that's life in the 21st century seymour is people we know who fall through the cracks of the system because there's no safety net yeah absolutely in the fictional codex within the novel cloud cuckoo land the protagonist is transformed into a donkey a sea bass and finally a crow which allows him to fly into the gates of the city in the clouds Mm -hmm. what do you imagine you would turn into to fly to cloud cuckoo land oh um i fall i would i would transform into a drunk little butterfly and i would just like spiral out into the clouds and like accidentally land there yeah beautiful Mm -hmm. beautiful What are you reading right now and what media are you watching or listening to? Okay, so right now I'm playing Tears of the Kingdom, the new Zelda game. It's awesome. Um, it also has non-linear storylines. And for podcasts, I'm listening to Um by um Katya and Trixie Mattel. Okay. Very, very funny. And um I'm reading that that biography about Sun Ra, who is a musician and performance artist. And he mm. was born he is so not of this planet literally and figuratively from an early age he started to say i'm from saturn and he held that and he reinvented his background and his story and his mythology mm-hmm. all the time and you know can you imagine being a black man in 1940s alabama and being like i'm from saturn <laughs> yeah so he w- he's an incredible human being What's your most controversial opinion on a book or in reading in general? Okay, well, I think that um, reading is like exercise. Everybody should do it. I don't care if you like it or not. When you are putting your mind into the hands of another person and you are reading their prose and their structure, you are are loosening the structures of your own framing of thinking. Mm -hmm. And it is such an enlightening experience. Whether you like the book or don't like the book doesn't matter. You're, You're opening up yourself. You're challenging mm-hmm. yourself. You're learning how to think in more complicated ways. Mm-hmm. And I literally think it is good for the soul to read. If you could roast any book, what book would it be? I fucking what- hate Anne Rand. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. She's coming. Let's roast Anne Rand. All right. I just, you know, I just think it's a cop out to say that everybody in this world is out for mm-hmm. themselves. Mm-hmm. I think it's an extremely mm-hmm. uh, cynical, tired, harmful outlook. It discounts the yeah. beauty of community. Yeah. And it also incel. It's incel vibes. Yeah. It it's also like, like validates violent rape. And yeah. I mean, that it's was enough bad. for me to be like, it's bad. Yeah. So yeah. If an author it's just propaganda, say, it's not literature. Yeah. If an author, any author that has to say their idea 16 times in the same paragraph, the same idea, that's not good writing. Mm-hmm. She yeah. depends so much on this like deus ex machina of like suddenly the newest composition been written, but it only exists in this free society that like her idealist people have created for themselves and everyone else that's like their, that's like their dog whistle into it. They're like, oh, did you hear this? The fourth composition by whatever guy and like. It's such a, it's such a like, let's go, Brandon. Like, it's just oh. so dumb. Oh, yeah. She needed to be hugged more as a child. Yeah, <laughs> that's all. That's all I got to say. <laughs> this was really fun. Yeah. Thank you so much. I can't wait to listen to all the episodes. I just and think it's cool people are still reading. So keep it up. <laughs> <laughs> we have spoken with Sarah. We have roasted sufficiently. Um, we have discussed its relationship to other authors in the current time period. We have also yeah. discussed Ayn Rand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cloud Cuckoo Land. A read or a roast? Ah, <sighs> I mean, let's just say the automatic roast, where the red fern dies, or where the red fern grows, which is about dying, it's not easier for me to read. It doesn't get easier for me to read. The the scenes where Tree and Moonlight, the oxen, Omeri's oxen die, were not easy, especially because yeah. one dies right after the other. He mm-hmm. dies because his brother's died and he wants to be swallowed up by the earth that is holding his brother. The length, the, the all these things. This is a good read as far as just making you think about how we story, how the ecological crisis 
affects us and will continue to affect us. Yeah, for sure. He does a lot of macro and micro work. He pulls out, you know, especially with Seymour to tell you about all the the flooding and the forest fires and the things that are affecting people in the global south, what we call now the global south, really, even though like we are the ones who are using, at least in Seymour's world, ilium tablets and getting, we're the ones who are these big wasters, which we don't see very much of now. I think people, a lot of people think of like Sarah saying, like you think of recycling and all this stuff. You think of like what's local to you, but your actions that are local have effects, have repercussions elsewhere. For sure. Your decision um, to buy an avocado, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why I don't eat asparagus. I mean, mainly because it's disgusting, but also it takes an intense amount of water to farm. <laughs> Without saying that, like, I love the book, mm-hmm. I'm going to call this a read. Yeah. Okay. You know, I loved elements of this story. I love stories about oral tradition. I love stories about, yeah. you know, this sort of like weaving together of various characters and something that unites them. I do think that his writing has like praiseable. His writing why. is great. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I do enjoy his writing. However, However, I do think that maybe it's my experience with similar work. Maybe it's my frustration Mm -hmm. with how certain works like this have been praised. Yeah. I think I'm going to go with roast purely on principle, but I I did enjoy it. I enjoyed the experience of reading it. I enjoyed the experience of listening to the audiobook. I do think it is palatable you know, certain, like to a wide audience for certain reasons. And that's part of why I would call it a roast. Um, Just because it, of like the marketing, I can tell what marketing went into this book and why. Into the actual writing? Yeah. Um, If the storyline, if you're talking about marketing the storyline, that's so roastable too. Yeah. But yeah. Especially because he is clearly anti-capitalist. The whole conversation we were having earlier about how like we're using certain types of characters to propel the story forward. Yeah. That is part of the marketing. That is always part of the marketing of a a story. It sucks, but like it is. Like I feel like coming from certain perspectives, it will always be part of the marketing rather than part of the story. And maybe that's disingenuous to say, but I don't know. Anyway. Even if it wasn't quite the marketing, it's the fact that it worked in the in his first in his not his first novel, but in the one that won a Pulitzer. You have yeah. a boy and a girl. One of them, he has a special skill. He's very good with radios and technology. Uh-huh. He's uh, he's German. She's French and blind and read. And then they both grow up reading the same story. And then she broadcasts an illegal radio station out. And she reads the book just to get people through this horrible time of the war. I mean, not all the things happen the same, but just like the placement of these, you know, the use of these characters, the way that you're saying is the same. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to love, but there's a lot to roast. Yeah. Because the elements that make it a roast are so prevalent in other works that I've read. I'm getting kind of tired of it and I'm going to call it roast. (laughs) I think is where I'm going with that. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's my take trope fatigue yeah fucking honestly okay. mm-hmm. i think that's such a good point and yeah. i think i am i think i'm hand in hand with you i've just kind of decided to like you tend to go one way with it yeah you know. because like you're saying i feel like i've read a lot of this before but i didn't like some of the books that this reminded me of you didn't no it was so heavily yeah. researched like i know yeah research, like heavily researches his novels yeah. so that i mean i guess yeah it's like a- what he studied history that was he has a yeah. bowling state a university degree in history before he did yeah. his mfa in writing and so yeah which makes so much sense when you look at the content of like what he writes about for sure for sure mm-hmm. the trope fatigue is real but i think that's fine because yeah. i think it's better than some of the other ones walking around out there yeah no i did like like i said yeah. before i did enjoy this this novel yeah. more than the overstory although there were i have kind of the same feelings about the overstory okay. there were things that i really enjoyed about the novel i don't know between the two door works i've read i might prefer all the light really we cannot see just as a whole but maybe some of like the elements in Cloud Cuckoo Land were more interesting to me. Like I was actually super, super pulled in by Constance's story. I thought it was really fascinating. I yeah. like I was hoping to find out like what happened to everybody, why everybody was getting sick, except for her, all these questions. I think it's interesting too. He placed this book at, you know, there's this, a crucial moment in February 20 of 2020, and then 200 years later, the descendants of this same event are living a pandemic. It seems so, it's so obvious, you know, misinformation in the current age and the stories that we tell ourselves. 
But I, I'm a little bit hesitant to ever accept the story of the human race. If Dora ever comes out and he's like, that's what this is about. I'm like, oh, this is a roast. It's a fucking roast. It's not about the story of the human race. It's not about us writing the story. It's about just accepting that we're in it. And it's not our story. We are one species within this huge larger story. I'm sure he's done at least one interview. I feel like maybe that's why like the over- I'm going to harp on the overstruck one more time. I feel like that's why it might be such like a good supplemental work to this novel. I mean, I won't like say too much about it. It gives different perspectives on like an ecological conversation. It, it resists in different ways and it, it's resisting different aspects of that conversation because it go it, there is like ecoterrorism involved. There is just like hippie yeah. activism. There is just like there's different aspects of like how people are handling ecological crisis throughout different periods of time. It doesn't say that it, it resists kind of like an answer as well. Mm-hmm. My frustration stems from the dissatisfaction of not having a solution, but we're still not shifting our anthropocentric sense. I mean, even in this time heals by forgetting and it's like, no, those who forget history are de- doomed to repeat it. Right. But we're like, we're still in this topic of human timeline human lifespans this is none of this is actually as relative to the planet Mm. it's also interesting too that like the oldest timeline in the book is is the 14th century like you know we've got a renaissance coming on and a lot of people some scholars consider that the anthropocene begins at the renaissance some people will only Including the Anthropocene as the time, the geological time era in which Mm -hmm. human activity has had an effect on that scale Mm -hmm. has been within the past couple of lifetimes. But the actions that have led to this, the structures that were built into this Mm -hmm. um, were, you know, colonialism of the New World and the Renaissance. So some people place that start date as when Europeans landed in the Americas and started actually settling and colonizing some people said it as when you know the printing press started and Mm -hmm. then we have the industrial revolution and stuff so it's interesting he picks this one moment in time he's like very very aware of the 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 very flimsy boundary between fiction and nonfiction, Mm -hmm. and that story can represent both of those right yeah yeah i think i feel okay with my read thing even if i don't feel like punching the word read through the wall yeah i don't feel like you know the same emphasis on the word roast but yeah it's enough of one for me to call it that yeah i would give this two out of three codexes (laughs) (laughs) now we turn it to the listeners what do you think is the title a read or a roast do you have a better read to recommend that hits the same as cloud cuckoo land Mm-hmm. let us know our next read a rather popular newer book could be a little movie. bit divisive in some yeah. way oh for sure know? yeah to be turned into a movie which is exciting kevin wilson author of nothing to see here has uh blurbed our, our next yeah time. we're very excited to have our next guest excited for our next read for sure yeah. and thank you thank you so much This has been Readed and Roast with Alex and Claire. Musical composition by Kate Bundy. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Readed and Roast, as well as like and subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts for posts, roasts, and more.